High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. Today's episode is sponsored by Isaac, their National Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Visit their website at isaacone.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to follow the science on marijuana. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. There is no safe drug supply unless it comes from a legal pharmacy. If you are around anyone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Hello again, High Truth listeners. Get ready for a SAMHSA conversation. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev. SAMHSA stands for the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration and is an agency within the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Mental health and addiction health very much overlap. Of the 20 million people who have a substance use disorder, about half, 50%, also have mental illness. Of the 47.6 million adults with a mental illness, about 20% also suffer from addiction. SAMHSA leads the public health efforts to advance the behavioral health of our nation. The government agency was established in 1992 by Congress as part of a reorganization effort. In that reorganization, SAMHSA took the treatment function for mental health and substance use disorder, while the research part was separated and led by NIDA, the National Institute of Drug Abuse, and NIAAA, the National Institute of Alcoholism and Alcohol Abuse. Both NIDA and NIAAA are under NIH, the National Institute of Health. SAMHSA is a powerful agency with a 2023 budget of $10.7 billion. That's a lot of money. And the funds are geared toward mental health, substance use prevention, treatment, and health surveillance. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Hello, Dr. Lev. Thank you for the work you do here in San Diego County to keep our community safe. My name is Marla Kincaid, and I have the privilege of facilitating the San Diego County Substance Use and Overdose Prevention Task Force, formerly the Mass Strike Force and the Prescription Drug Abuse Task Force, which was established in 1996. My question for you today is regarding funding. Funds go out either for mental health or for substance use or drug treatment and prevention programs. Sometimes these fundings happen within silos. How can SAMHSA encourage collaboration between substance use disorder programs and behavioral health programs? Marla, thank you for your question and thank you for all you do for San Diego County in facilitating interactions between diverse agencies, all for the good of the citizens of San Diego, making San Diego healthy 
and a place to live. So thank you for all that and your question. And to answer your question, I reached out to the tippy top of U.S. government for all issues on mental health and substance use disorder treatment, and that would be the head of SAMHSA, Dr. Miriam Delphin Ritten. Marla, I'm going to integrate your question into my conversation with Dr. Delphin Rittman, who is currently the Assistant Secretary of Mental Health and Substance Use in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Administrator of SAMHSA. Before heading SAMHSA, she had an extensive, accomplished career, including serving as Commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. To learn more about Dr. Miriam Delphin Rittman, check out the High Truth show notes. Dr. Delphine Rittman, welcome to High Truths. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Lev. I am so excited to have you here. And I have so many questions to the director of SAMHSA. Um, what is SAMHSA? Mental health, substance use disorder, health equity, opiate use disorders, marijuana, and the overlap of everything. So I hope I get to everything. But let's just start with uh, what is SAMHSA? Tell us about the organization. Okay. So SAMHSA stands for the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. And, you know, we are comprised of, we have four centers. So the Center for Mental Health Services, the Center for Substance Abuse Treatment, the Center for Substance Abuse Prevention, and the Center for Behavioral Health Statistics and Quality. Um, And then we also have several offices. So we have our 988 Coordinating Office. Uh, We also have our Office of Behavioral Health Equity. Uh, We also have our uh, Office of Fiscal Resources. Um, But essentially, you put all that together, and our work is about, you know, addressing the behavioral health of the nation from a prevention, treatment, recovery, uh, harm reduction perspective, uh, and those are many of the key areas of our work. That is important to all of us, probably in in all our lives, so a very important office um, making a big difference in our nation uh, where we really need it these days. What about the the word, SAMHSA has a word abuse in it, and we're trying to change the name. Are you working on that? You know, language does matter. It, it does matter. And so we are looking at the abuse, uh, the, the word abuse in our name. Um, and we are looking to, to make some changes there. You know, of course, you know, that would require legislative action. And so we are, uh, you know, looking to put forward a recommendation there. Um, we believe the word abuse is, it is stigmatizing. And we know stigma, uh, you, you play that out and it could ultimately impact people's help seeking or the willingness, willingness to access services. Um, so we are looking to change the abuse to use. Uh, right. and so uh, would need legislative action for that though. An act of Congress. So you're waiting on that. <laughs> yes. Um, let's talk mental health. We definitely have a serious mental health crisis in our country. Um, as an emergency physician, that's probably my number one issue. People would be surprised. Um, but mental health crises are uh, number one things that we see in the emergency department. And patients wait for days and months for an available bed. So let me first just ask you why. Why is this? Is it, is it more volume patients, decreased resources, drugs, all of the above? You know, it's it's a complex question, and it really, it, it likely is some combination of all of the above. You know, we know certainly since the pandemic, we have seen uh, increased challenges around behavioral health. Um, we see increased rates of anxiety and depression among young young people. Um, we've seen our overdose rates continue to increase. We've seen suicide rates uh, increase among some age groups. Um, so it certainly is a challenging time. 
Um, I think all of that potentially contributes to what we're seeing happening at, within emergency departments. Um, some of our goal there and some of our work, and I'm, I'm so appreciative that, of the president and uh, the Biden-Harris administration's leadership there, um, because we've received increased resources to be able to help further build out both crisis services and supports, um, but then also to expand uh, community-based services and supports so that an individual can get connected to care, um, ideally before, uh, before they're in crisis. I mean, all of that can help to take some of the pressure off of the emergency departments. That certainly is, is one of the things that we're aiming for. Is there any talk about bringing back long-term psychiatric beds that were closed during the Reagan era? Um, you know, having those patients in the emergency department affects not just those patients that, you know, being in the ER for, for months for with a mental health crisis is probably not the ideal place, but it also affects people waiting to come in. Um, I had a friend die in the waiting room because there's no beds and he was in chest pain for an hour because there's no beds available. So it's real that it's a crisis all around for our society. So I was wondering if there's any talk about bringing back those type of beds. You know, I mean, we're we're actually hearing the opposite that that in fact, um, sometimes for some individuals being in an inpatient setting for a long period of time, that that can be traumatic. Um, it disconnects them from the, da the daily rhythms of their daily life. Um, and so increasingly, actually, what we're seeing states and communities talk about is increasing community-based care. Um, so treating people at the lowest level of care possible, given what they're experiencing, you know, so appropriately connecting them to the lowest level of care possible. Um, and so what we're seeing is things like stabilization centers begin to pop up more um, or, uh, you know, crisis receiving centers. Um, that can be an alternative both to a, a crisis bed or to uh, a person going into an inpatient setting, uh, because ultimately with a stabilization center, a person may be stabilized at that site and then connected to uh, other outpatient uh, community-based services and supports. Um, and we know that there are acts that, you know, for example, the Olmstead Act talks a lot about that, about treating people in the least restrictive, most integrated community-based setting. Uh, and so certainly that's one of the areas that we're looking at in the area we're focused on. Um, one example I'll provide is, you know, our, our community-based, uh, our CCBHCs, so Certified Community Behavioral Health Clinics. Um, we now have 500 of them around the country. And what they're geared towards is connecting people to community-based care, um, whether they're uh, grappling with mental health challenges, substance use counts, uh, challenges, 24-hour uh, uh, crisis support is provided as well. Um, and again, there are 500 of them across the country, and we are looking to continue to scale those up as well. All right. So those are some of the solutions that you're working on in mental health. Anything else you we should know about that SAMHSA is working on with the mental health uh, challenges of our day? Absolutely. You know, so uh, last July, we transferred the 10-digit suicide prevention crisis lifeline number. Uh, we transferred that to a three-digit number, 988. Um, and the thing that I'm really excited about with 988 is if a person is in crisis, whether it be for um, mental health or substance use or some other suicide-related crisis, they can call, but they can also text or chat. And I think that's the real, I think, important piece here. A person can call, text, or chat uh, 988. Um, if they're chatting, what they would do is they would chat to 988lifeline.org. Um, and they'll be connected to a trained, compassionate counselor who can talk with them and address whatever they're uh, dealing with. And if necessary, uh, connect them to other community-based services and supports um, to include mobile crisis if necessary. 
so that is a, a resource that we're really excited about. Um, when we look at some of the data, we've seen such an uh, increase of calls uh, come in. So the volume there has increased significantly, um, letting us know that this is a resource that has been valuable and important for people. I love that. So 911 for, you know, uh, physical uh, emergencies. And our producer, Dave Rivas, was a 911 dispatcher. Or 988 for is like the suicide hotline, right? That's right. Yeah, 988. No, and I love the fact that you are reaching out with new communication messages. And I imagine a younger generation wants to text and chat rather than do the old-fashioned phone calls. Yeah, and that is what we're seeing, that the the text and chat, where we've seen the most significant increase in volume. Right. I I love that. And so let's talk about substance use disorder. You have a whole center just for that. Um, You're charged by Congress to... Help with prevention and treatment for substance use disorder, and uh, what is your your main objectives and things that you're working on? Yeah, you know, so within our Center for uh, Substance Abuse Treatment and Center for Substance Abuse Prevention, so though each of those centers uh, are addressing the substance use challenges that that we're seeing um, within our substance abuse uh, Center for Substance Abuse Prevention. Um, We have a number of programs really geared towards preventing substance use. Uh, We fund many community-based coalitions that do community-based programs, school-based programs, uh, teaching young people and and even school personnel, um, you know, about the dangers of substances or how to identify a young person that may be struggling. Um, We have two apps that are uh, recent resources that, uh, that we're really excited about. One is called Talk They Hear You. Uh, coming out of, again, the Center for Substance Abuse Prevention. Um, And it's an app uh, geared towards our parents or caregivers or even teachers uh, that has really useful information around starting conversations um, with young people around uh, either their mental health or using substances. Um, There are different vignettes around those conversations and even information and content uh, around connecting young people to services and supports. Um, and then we have a second resource uh, that we call uh, called Screen for Success. Um, and that is an app and a, and a website that has information around uh, really screening and being able to um, identify specific criteria, specific uh, features to, to look out for, uh, to be able to identify a young person that may be struggling. And it has different categories as well of, of uh, areas of potential concern. Um, so overall wellness or, or their social connection, things like that. Uh, and so both of those resources are coming out of our Center for Substance Abuse Prevention. That's important. We know that prevention is really the upstream solution for substance use disorder. And uh, we've done some programs that you're teaching emotional resiliency and how to deal with life's challenges without going to drugs. If we, we get that, then we would have less addiction and, and problems downstream. It's so true. It's so true. I mean, I think teaching uh, young people just how to recognize, how to manage their emotions. Um, and if a young person is struggling, getting them connected to services and supports early, um, all of that makes a difference. Um, In fact, another program that we fund out of our Center for Mental Health Services is called our Project AWARE. And it does just that. It's geared towards identifying uh, young people within school settings uh, who may be struggling with mental health or even substance use challenges, um, and then connecting them with services and support. So it's a program that um, provides training for teachers and school personnel uh, to be able to identify young folks that may be struggling. That's great. 
And we should also encourage the social norms that more people over time are actually more kids are choosing not to use drugs and uh, protect their growing brain. So we should, you know, applaud that and, and promote those social norms as well. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. There is a, a whole network of young people across the country uh, as, as part of the, uh, you know, recovery work. So there are many different recovery, uh, youth recovery organizations um, that are all about sort of promoting wellness and promoting self-care um, and promoting, um, you know, uh, not using substances, uh, again, all across the country that are just wonderful avenues for young people to be connected to uh, and to learn positive, uh, you know, pro-social ways of, of being a young person. Yeah. You know, my listeners know that I'm all, I'm very jealous of infectious diseases. I'm jealous of COVID and monkeypox and the flu fentanyl now is plaguing our country more than all of that. And I always wonder, can we apply the same methodology that we do for infectious disease to the issue of fentanyl? Yeah, you know, it's it's so true. Fentanyl, it, we just see it across the country. Um, increasingly, the overdose like rates and patterns that we're seeing, fentanyl is implicated there in terms of being involved and connected to some of those overdoses. And often people don't necessarily know that they're taking it. Um, we find it mixed in, you know, illicitly manufactured fentanyl mixed in with other substances, sometimes with marijuana, uh, you know, sometimes with uh, pressed into pills. Um, and so it certainly is a, a challenge and a problem across the country. Um, one thing that we're doing there is we have let our grantees know that with our state opioid response uh, grant funds or our tribal opioid response grant funds, and really even our, our uh, block grant resources, uh, that people can purchase fentanyl test strips. Um, and again, fentanyl test strips are uh, strips that will allow an individual to test their substances to see if there is fentanyl uh, in them. Uh, and ultimately that can be life-saving. Um, and then we're also working with states around naloxone saturation. Um, so really working with states to develop plans uh, to saturate their communities uh, with naloxone such that if an individual is struggling with substances or is um, you know, overdosing, whether it be with uh, fentanyl or, you know, another opioid, that uh, naloxone is there because we know that that is life-saving. Right. And we're promoting naloxone for anybody who uses any drugs, not just for opioids, because fentanyl has infected the entire drug market and people who are unassuming uh, overdose. I'm really proud. Um, your funds have trickled down to California and we're spending that money on naloxone vending machines um, throughout our county. Fantastic. Yeah, it's wonderful to hear that those vending machines are popping up. I mean, I was in a conversation earlier today. Um, and the nice thing about the vending machines is that, you know, it, it will provide easier access. So if a person isn't carrying naloxone themselves, or if they don't have it on them themselves, if we can get to a point where the vending machines are available far and wide, um, then it increases the likelihood that an individual is going to be able to access or get naloxone uh, if they need to help reverse an overdose. Um, so right. I love the idea of the vending machines, and we're certainly encouraging our grantees and, uh, you know, others to think about vending machines as well as other sources and, and um, avenues for disseminating naloxone far and wide. Right. And some people are more embarrassed of going to a pharmacy or asking for a prescription because it makes an assumption about what they're doing. So the vending machines are, are nice. Um, and so, yeah, we're, we're happy to have that. You know, I do, I do want to mention, you know, naloxone is uh, available over the counter now as well. Um, and so, you know. And thank you for that. 
Too. Yeah. You know, again, I, I so appreciate just the, the administration's focus. So FDA did approve uh, an over-the-counter uh, version of naloxone that uh, um, is available or will soon be available uh, if it's not already uh, within pharmacies. And so that's uh, another way, uh, or not pharmacies, but just, you know, within uh, actually likely in pharmacies, but not necessarily, you don't need a prescription to get it. Um, right. And so that will be yeah another way to be able to help increase access to naloxone because we know right. that it is life saving. Pick up your Tylenol and Motrin and and uh, as well as your naloxone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And have it like you know we have AED machines right everywhere in different places, public places. Um, you know we have that readily available as well. Sadly, sad, very sadly that we need such a thing. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is, it is uh, you know, it, it's sad that we need such a thing, but I'm grateful that there are, um, there are uh, those resources available. Yeah. Um, the states are working really, really hard to be able to um, have naloxone available far and wide, um, putting together really detailed plans. And in fact, later this summer, um, we're going to be doing a policy academy um, with states, bringing together state teams to be able to further develop um, and, and really get nuanced with their naloxone saturation plans. Oh, I have something to share with your policy, state policy thing. Uh, uh, something I'm very proud of that we accomplished in California. We passed a law, Tyler's Law, that requires all hospitals to include fentanyl whenever they order a drug test in the hospital. It doesn't require testing, but if you're going to test for marijuana and cocaine and methamphetamine, why would you not include the number one drug, especially when it's infected and people who are unassuming? And uh, California passed that, Maryland copied that. And we really hope to get federal solutions of, for, for hospitals to uh, include fentanyl in drug testing. It's only 75 cents a test. So uh, I wanted to share that with you. Uh, and maybe you can spread the word. Well, fantastic. And kudos to California uh, for, for passing that. It, it, it's important. And I think testing um, really is critical to, to know what substances an individual is um, struggling with. So it's wonderful to hear that that's, that's the case in California and, and sounds like other states as well. So you champion for healthcare equity. Um, you've specialized in multicultural healthcare equity. And can you explain to us what does that mean and where are the gaps that you're finding and what you're doing about that? Yeah. Um, so, you know, we have quite a lot of work happening in, in this space. We do have an Office of Behavioral Health Equity um, that focuses just on this area on, you know, ensuring that uh, diverse groups and populations, under-resourced groups, uh, whether it be populations of color, um, LGBTQ individuals, uh, really across the diversity spectrum um, to ensure that they have equitable access uh, so they're able to access uh, services and supports and resources and, and programs uh, that certainly that we offer, but really across the board in healthcare um, because we provide quite a bit of training and technical assistance for healthcare providers as well. Um, and so just, you know, some of the things that we do through our Office of Behavioral Health Equity, we do fund, uh, for example, one program or, or one program that we're implementing uh, right now is called our, uh, our Disparity Impact Statement. Um, and so for our grantees, what, we, what the grantees have to do is develop a statement around how they're going to uh, work with and address any disparity-related populations that they may be serving with that grant. Um, and then we're encouraging that they use the class standards. So the culturally and linguistically appropriate uh, uh, standards that come out of the Office of Minority Health. 
Um, and ultimately, the goal is to really help to ensure that through that grant, uh, that they're able to meet the needs of diverse groups that they may be serving within that particular grant. Um, so that's one initiative. Another grant that we have or, or a program that we have is we call our Elevate CBOs. Um, and so what we're doing there is through our NED, which is the National Network to Eliminate Disparities, uh, that includes over 1,500 community-based organizations. Um, and we're working with those organizations around applying for grants. So that's the Elevate CBO initiative, um, applying for grants, keeping grants, budgeting, um, just all the work and data collection, um, all the work that happens with both applying for uh, and, and keeping a grant. Um, and so that's one thing we're doing to help to ensure that um, diverse communities uh, are poised and ready to, to apply for and, and access our resources through grants. Um, so those are just two of our initiatives. Um, but, you know, we also fund a number of center of excellence, uh, you know, uh, uh, grants that are, for example, we have our African-American Center of Excellence. We have a Center of Excellence looking at uh, Latino Americans, Asian Americans, um, and then uh, also uh, Native American Training and Technical Assistance Center. Uh, we have an LGBTQ uh, Technical Assistance Center. Um, so just a, a range of either um, uh, technical assistance centers uh, or centers of excellence geared towards addressing equity. That's good. That's all important because we each each individuals relate to different messages, and you accept medical care um, better, understand it better. Also, if it's coming from an angle that you you understand, so that's also important. Let's talk about opiate use disorder um, and treatment, and uh, I'm sure you're doing a lot about that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, one of the grants that we fund to address uh, opioid use disorder is our, our SOAR grant, so State Opioid Response Grant, and then also our TOR grants, uh, Tribal Opioid Response Grants. Um, those are just, you know, two of the grant programs that we have, very similar, you know, parallel grants. One is for tribal communities um, in particular, and then the, the SOAR grant, uh, you know, really goes across the country to states and territories. Um, the thing that we, what we're seeing there are the states are doing such creative work um, with the SOAR grant uh, and the TOR grant, so the states and tribes and territories. Um, that grant often will fund just a broad range of prevention, treatment, recovery, and harm reduction uh, services and supports at the community level. Um, so we see things like um, states uh, funding recovery coaches to work in emergency departments, such that if a person is brought to an emergency department with and, and they're, um, they've overdosed or they're having some substance related, uh, you know, admission, um, they're connected with a recovery coach. So a person in recovery uh, who then uh, works with them over time to help connect them to services and supports and helps to give them hope by sharing their own story. Um, so that's just one example. Um, and then we also see wonderful um, mobile, uh, so um, mobile vans um, that go out into communities and disseminate naloxone, or in some instances do low dose induction uh, for individuals that may be struggling with opioid use disorder. Uh, so a lot of creativity uh, that is making a real meaningful difference. Uh, I do, I love that. Meeting people where they are. We have that too, we have people going out to the homeless and providing naloxone, and we're going to start buprenorphine treatment, and uh, right where where people are. Yeah, yeah, and I think that makes a difference because we know that there are some groups 
um, you know, people may not feel comfortable accessing services if they don't understand what they're about or if they don't know where they are or ways to access them. And, and so the, the mobile units, whether it be vans, we've seen in some instances even RVs uh, that, uh, you know, states are using and communities are using uh, to go into areas that may be hotspots. So areas where there's either uh, high levels of overdose or um, where, they, where they've done previous naloxone dissemination. Um, and it's just an opportunity to connect with people who may not be um, accessing services and supports or, or who may not know about services and supports. Yeah, I love that reach. That they're, impl- they're planting important seeds for individuals uh, to help them to, to know about care and how to, how to connect. So tell us about uh, 42 CFR. Um, explain, it's a privacy big law, you know, with uh, fancy numbers. Um, but there are changes to that. Can you explain to us what that is? And I want to ask more about that and how it relates to uh, MAT treatment. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we did one, one thing that we're really pleased about is we did put it out for public comment, uh, you know, the, the 40, and we got so many comments uh, related to that. So we really, really appreciate the public feedback and comments related to that. Um, tell, the- tell us what that is. Explain to us what the what this 42 CFR is and, and what the comments are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we are in the process of reviewing the comments currently. So that that's something that is currently sort of uh, happening now. Um, but essentially what we do is we, we put it out, we develop a, we call it a notice of proposed rulemaking. Um, and what we do is we put that rule out for public comment uh, and then people will send in, uh, you know, their comments related to the regulation uh, that essentially pertains to, you know, federal opioid use disorder treatment standards. Um, and so that's really what that law does. Um, and what we've done is we have proposed updates uh, to the standards around how uh, people access and experience opioid use disorder treatment. Um, and so really that's what we've gotten some feedback about. Um, we have put in place a number of, of flexibilities um, while we're still sort of, um, you know, while we're still synthesizing uh, that information. And so uh, we are, um, you know, while we synthesize, while we're currently synthesizing the information, it put in a number of flexibilities related to, uh, you know, OTPs and take-home doses of methadone and medications, um, just to be able to ensure that some of those flexibilities that we put in place during the pandemic, uh, that people still can um, access their medications. I mean, ultimately, our goal is to be more, is to be person-centered, um, to make sure that we have continued access and increase access. Um, but also to make sure that people have choice even in, in, and a voice uh, in uh, the ways in which their information is used or shared as well. And so that's an important piece of that as well. Interesting. All right, I'll put my little quick quest in for that. Uh, okay. Really all into integrating physical health, mental health, and addiction health. It shouldn't be separated. We should be able to talk. Each practitioner regarding the field should be able to talk to each other. So if I prescribe as a doctor buprenorphine, it enters our PDMP you know, state monitoring system. But if the OTP clinics prescribe the same exact medication they're prevented from reporting. And we really should be talking to each other and sharing information for the for the betterment of our patients. So that's my request. <laughs> Although within the OTPs, the, you know, the OTP can enter, enter their um, information into the PDMP um, and share with the, with the approval of the person. So if the individual that they're working with gives their consent, 
um, then their information can both be shared and entered into the PDMP um, as, as um, allowed by state law, of course, because there are state laws that also regulate um, the, you know, some of the sharing of this information. But if the state laws are aligned and if the person gives their consent, um, then the information can be shared um, both with other physicians as well as entered within the PDMP. But see, that's a different standard for for those clinics compared to the rest of medical care. We've learned that there shouldn't be, you know, your privacy shouldn't kill you. We should be able to communicate and, and know, you know, if, I, if I'm admitting somebody with appendicitis and they're on methadone, I should know what they're on and, and their dose. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. That that makes sense. You know, the other thing that we are doing with it as well is we're, we're um, recommending some language changes because as we talked about earlier, we know language makes a difference. Uh, so, you know, changing some of the outdated language like detoxification or, or detox uh, and, and using more and, and incorporating more updated language. And What's the new word for detox? Um, so, you know, instead of detox, you know, it might be um, you know, we're still, we're, we're looking at different options there. Um, so withdrawal so, management could be withdrawal management, uh, but stay tuned. Uh, we're still refining, we're refining all the comments that, that have come in and, and, uh, but we'll, we'll ultimately get there in terms of language that's less stigmatizing, um, because we know stigma can help to reduce an individual's likelihood of accessing care. Uh, and to the extent that people internalize, if an individual ex internalizes stigmatizing language, it can impact how they feel about themselves. Um, and so with all of these language changes, whether it be through the Part 8 rule or even with the, our name change, uh, both with SAMHSA overall and within our centers, I'm really looking to have more person-centered, uh, you know, less stigmatizing language because it does matter and does matter. Interesting. I do. I, I want to, I always say that, feel bad when I use the language, but I do. I say that to my patients that maybe you need to detox your, your body, you know, you know, and to feel better. So I actually, I do use that word. So I have to think about that. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, we, we all do it. There, there are language or terms across both the mental health and substance use, um, you know, feel that, um, within our Office of Recovery, in fact, uh, this is one of the areas they're working on in terms of maybe putting out some guidance around language that um, that may be stigmatizing and, and may be harmful when inter internalized. Um, terms like clean, you know, for years that's been used within the, um, you know, within the uh, substance use related work. Mm -hmm. uh, and what people in recovery tell us is that that, that word is hurtful uh, when they hear, you know, whether they're clean or not, or they've been, um, but then there are even variations within the field. Like some people say, well, that is, or individuals say, well, I don't mind that term. That's what I've, I, that's what I've always used. That's what I've heard. Mm -hmm. um, but in general, we're, we're looking to put out maybe just high level guidance around uh, terms, which may be stigmatizing for individuals uh, and, and contribute to, you know, internalized stigma as well. Yeah. We do want to promote good self-esteem, right? <laughs> um, Congress X the X waiver, yay. Um, so now every doctor in America can prescribe buprenorphine, but there were added uh, educational mandates. Can you explain that? Because the uh, uh, medical community is fearful. The, the whole prescription opioid epidemic happened because of government mandates on prescribing and laws that were passed for that. So now we have new education mandates. Can you, can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, so with the removal of the X waiver, 
uh, physicians no longer have to sign up for the specific uh, DEA license or waiver to be able to prescribe, uh, you know, prescribe um, buprenorphine. Um, but instead, so physicians or any prescribers, eligible prescribers, so it's not just pr- uh, physicians, nurse practitioners and, and other eligible prescribers. Um, instead, though, what they do have to do is take a one-time um, eight-hour training. Uh, and the, the training, we are actually working pretty closely with DEA um, around what the features of those trainings will look like. Um, so stay tuned there. That's also that's in process. We're uh, in regular meetings with them to, to really be able to outline and work through what that training will look like. Um, but it really will be for new prescribers um, or for individuals when they update their license. Uh, we'll have to take the eight-hour training. Um, and so that's what things are looking like at this point. But we will be putting out um, and are working really to, to make sure that uh, prescribers and others have information around um, what the requirements will be. Um, since it's a fairly new, you know, new law that was part of the omnibus bill that came out, um, ultimately we're, we're still working to get information out and continue to sort of connect with providers on an ongoing basis um, to keep everyone updated um, because the, the training requirements have not been put out yet. Um, they're, they're in process and DEA and, and uh, SAMHSA and others are working on those now. So, for example, um, Champions for Health, which is a foundation arm for the San Diego County Medical Association, worked with uh, San Diego Public Health and created uh, modules and courses on innovation and smart approaches and safe prescribing. Would those courses count, or are you creating a new government-mandated course? Or are there, there are so many courses out there, would they all count, do you think? Yeah, you know, so again, stay tuned, but some of the thinking is it wouldn't be just a government course because there's, you know, missed opportunity there if it's just that. Um, There's a lot of training out there. And so, you know, perhaps, and again, we're still in the process of of developing this. It it may be that, um, you know, what is recommended is a particular set of content areas, um, but that, you know, more broadly, um, it it wouldn't be just, you know, one government course that's put out. Uh, but stay tuned. We're, we're still working that through with DEA. So I don't want to get ahead of our, uh, you okay. know, get ahead of the sausage making. <laughs> Got it. I will, I will, I will put in a plug for uh, diverse sausages. <laughs> yeah. For and the... we're with you there. Okay. We're with you there because there's a lot of, you know, certainly we know that there are a lot of valuable training, um, you know, courses and training teams and groups out there. And so um, we have to all be in this together. Uh, and so certainly that's something. And things change. I, you know, when I did these courses before, I noticed that from one year to the next, I would have to make some adjustments because there's always something new. Yeah. Yeah. The field is dynamic. The field, um, the field changes, medication changes, treatment protocols change. Right. Um, and so we, we are, we're going to need, and it's, it's going to be important that the, um, the training that's recommended for providers, that, that it's aligned with, with those changes as, yeah. well, as well. I actually, one of the few government people who actually took the eight-hour MAT course, and it left me with more questions, and it wasn't updated on a regular basis. So I, hopefully we learned from history of, of not to do that again. Yeah, and stay tuned, because again, it's in process. I don't want to I don't want to speak before we're, we're done, but um, my, my uh, anticipation is that uh, it wouldn't necessarily be one government course. All right, let's talk about marijuana, uh, something else that needs a lot of education, actually. Um, it can be a con- controversial topic. 
Um, but it really shouldn't be when it comes to mental health and addiction, especially our youth. And one of the most, you know, gut-wrenching podcasts I ever did was talking to parents whose children died because of cannabis-induced psychosis. Um, and, and those parents never knew that, you know, it's just marijuana could be so harmful. Um, my colleague, Joe Everstein, heads a Marijuana Prevention Institute of San Diego. And his question to you is, what's SAMHSA's position on marijuana? And do you have recommendations for his youth prevention work? You know, so our position that, you know, we we are certainly aligned with the, the federal government position that, you know, marijuana, we, we see it as a Schedule One um, controlled substance. Um, you know, we do know when we look at some of the data, you know, young people that um, are having mental health challenges or they're having prodromal um, experiences of psychosis. Um, there are some, some studies that show, uh, you know, that it can, marijuana use can exacerbate those mental health challenges for an individual. It can exacerbate, um, you know, the experiences of, of psychosis. Um, there are other studies that show in, in terms of, again, so individuals younger than 21, uh, that the developing brain, uh, particularly for an individual that is struggling with mental health challenges, can experience uh, adverse uh, outcomes. Uh, and so that's certainly something that, um, that we're aware of. Uh, our, we're focused, again, on the prevention, a lot of the, the prevention aspects of this. So the resource I mentioned earlier, Talk They Hear You, for example, um, has a lot of um, examples and resources for parents and caregivers and others around starting conversations um, with young people around marijuana use um, and, or other substances um, and some of the potential dangers or pitfalls there. Um, so again, I, I just note that resource because it is quite valuable. Um, and, and so just wanted to share that again. We will we'll include the resources you mentioned um, in the show notes. So thank you for that. Yeah. So I can't emphasize enough how I see marijuana poisoning every day in my work in the emergency department. I worked last night, um, patient with cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, cannabis-induced psychosis, uh, cannabis-associated heart problems, um, you know, every single day. And I don't think people understand or even know that THC is very much more potent than it used to be and has many adverse uh, effects. And we just hear how good it is for, you know, in public billboards, but we're not hearing enough about the harms. Yeah, uh, certainly there are individuals with underlying conditions. Uh, there certainly can be exacerbated harms there. Yeah. So talking about overlap, we, we you know, you're, you, you know more than anybody that all these things that we've talked about individually with different centers and and agencies, they, they overlap. I see that overlap in the emergency department all, all the time. Um, people who are suicidal need to, I'm going to use that word you said not to, but need to detox from their alcohol and methamphetamine and marijuana to feel better. So how does SAMHSA deal with the overlap of mental health and addiction? It's such an important question and, and definitely an area that we're looking at and, and, and really grappling with as well. Um, you know, I'd mentioned earlier our, our CCBHC grant initiative, so Certified Community Behavioral Health Clinics. Um, one of the things that I really appreciate about that model 
uh, is that the, the CCBHCs, and again, there are about 500 of them across the country, um, and we do have funding to continue to scale those up, uh, that that is an integrated, it's, a, it's an integrated model in terms of mental health and substance use. So it provides uh, mental health services, substance use related services, uh, co-occurring services, um, crisis services as well. Um, the, and of course, does screening for primary care needs and can connect people to primary care services and, su and supports. Um, so we recognize that, you know, people may be struggling with one or the other or both. Um, and as part of our work to create multiple entryways or no wrong door into care, um, it's been really important to set up um, models like that. Um, the other thing we're doing, though, is within our grants, within many of our grants, we're letting um, grantees know that they can propose uh, and, and uh, you know, think about the grant from a co-occurring perspective. Uh, and then we have other grants that are specifically, so a recent re-entry grant uh, that uh, we had out uh, earlier this year. Um, it, it really is to be proposed around both uh, individuals uh, experiencing re-entry, um, but then uh, the programs can be built around mental health challenges, substance use, or co-occurring. Um, so it is an important area to take a look at and continue to provide uh, resources for. I like that. No wrong door. Um, uh, my other colleague, Marla Kincaid, while working for the Center for uh, Community Research, she notes that grant funding goes either to mental health, like NAMI, or to prevention of drugs or treatment of drugs. but And these funding divisions sometimes prevent us from working together. So, for example, we wanted um, to work on uh, suicide prevention, and we noted that the number one drug associated with people who died from suicide age or the developing brain, 25, is marijuana, by far, much more than alcohol or anything else. We thought, wow, this is a prevention message, not just from the marijuana prevention initiative, but also for NAMI and suicide, and thought, let's work on this together. And it was like, you know, no, we get funding only for this, or we get funding only for that, and it prevented us from working together sounded silly to me. What do you think? Yeah, so, so we actually do encourage creative collaborations um, among uh, community groups and, uh, and, and see that. We, we've seen really creative collaborations, uh, you know, across, across different grantee groups. So I'm not sure which grant that, that was, but, um, but, but definitely that's something that, that we are encouraging and, and, and actually seeing at the community level. Um, we see sometimes creative collaborations with uh, recovery organizations and either uh, mental health or substance use related organizations, or sometimes even primary care organizations. Um, and we're beginning to see that increasingly. Um, so recovery uh, groups that are working with emergency departments uh, or recovery organizations working with emergency departments. So um, we are, we are, we appreciate those types of uh, integrated models uh, and encourage grantees to do you know, creative community-based collaborations like that. Great. I love that. I'm going to tell them that you said so. <laughs> yes. And, and if they have questions, you know, the other thing is if, if they have questions, certainly contact the project officer that's listed on the grant um, or send us an email. You know, often there'll, there'll be a, a, a place to sort of send in emails or call. Emails are probably better. Um, you know, send an, e an email uh, related to any specific question about, uh, you know, about um, the requirements for applications. Thank you. All right. So now we, we actually got to talk about everything. I want to ask you, what is your most proud accomplishment 
uh, SAMHSA. You've listed so many, and I'm going to try to get most of those in our show notes uh, of the uh, various resources. But what's your most proud accomplishment uh, uh, at your time in office here? You know, that is a very hard question. It's it's a hard question because, um, you know, especially now as as I'm traveling more now, as, as the pandemic has gotten better and I can be out and about and I'm visiting different grantees and community-based programs. And, and I have to say that that's one thing that I, I, I am proud of and appreciate seeing just the, the real dedication and commitment and hard work that's happening across the country from our grantees. Um, and and the, um, just the, the vision um, and passion they have for helping people to move into recovery, whether it be mental health recovery or substance use recovery. And we see that across our grants. Um, and, and it's been wonderful to see that, that at the community level, um, you know, the, the funding that uh, the administration has put forward and the, that we receive as part of our budget, that it makes a difference. Um, it makes a difference whether we're visiting a, you know, a SOAR, State Open Response Grant, uh, community-based program, or one of the 988 call centers, uh, or one of the Project AWARE grants. I've, I've had the opportunity to visit uh, several of those all over the country. Um, and, and I think that's, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of that for our grantees and, and proud of them really for the amazing work that they're doing to, to um, help improve people's lives, to help people thrive really um, with the challenges that, that they might be experiencing from a mental health or substance use perspective. That's awesome. And you know what? It is so people working in this field are very passionate and it's it's infectious. It's nice to be around people who are so passionate about their work and, and so creative about getting solutions. Yeah, it really is. It really is. It's energizing. It's energizing. And uh, and that energy is, it can be contagious. So it's it's a it's a good contagion when, uh, you know, when uh, people are passionate about the programs, because ultimately, I think I think the people served um, feel some of that energy and they feel some of that passion. I think it's healing for them as well. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. What's your final words of ice for communities across our nation who are working on mental health and addiction? Yeah. You know, I mean, I think my final words of advice would be just to, it's important to have hope, um, to have hope and reach out to, to know that if they're struggling or somebody they know is struggling with a mental health or substance use challenge, that support is available um, and they don't have to go through whatever they're going through alone. Um, if it's a crisis, they can call uh, or text or chat 988. Or if they're looking to get connected to services, they can look at and, and look up findsupport.gov. Uh, and findsupport.gov is is a real valuable resource that can help people to connect to services and supports as well. That's great. Um, I want to say thank you to Marla Kincaid um, for your question. And uh, Marla is an amazing facilitator. She is the star of integration, of bringing public health, public safety, different community champions from around the area and around our nation together, getting them together, working together. It's an amazing job. Marla is really an example and a champion of that. And thank you so, so much, um, Dr. Delphin Rittman, for joining us today. We are in good hands with you at the helms of SAMHSA. I really appreciate your leadership and your passion and your time to to join us here today at High Truths. Thank you so much, Dr. Lev. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support of our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to Isaac, 
the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis, Doctors Educating on the Harms of Marijuana. Visit isaac1.org, that's I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to view their library that translates medical journals for public understanding, listen to their speaker series, and follow the science on marijuana. High Truth producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I'm your host, Dr. Oneet Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more High Truths. Thank you.